0: U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account.
1: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is
3: Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Will Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. Inflation, record COVID numbers, and an unresolved standoff with Russia, leaving us with an uncertain start to the new year. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. It wasn't just the winter cold snap that may have sent a shiver down your spine this week. Wednesday, we heard what we had suspected. Inflation last year was the worst it has been in nearly four decades, up a whopping 7%. Here's American Action Forum President Douglas Holtz Eakin. They do have a real problem. There's real heat on these inflation numbers. And all that inflation certainly has the attention of the Federal Reserve, as Chair Jay Powell testified at his Senate confirmation hearing that the Fed has to turn its attention now from supporting the economy to making sure inflation doesn't become a long-term problem.
4: We will use our tools to support the economy and a strong labor market and to prevent higher inflation from becoming entrenched.
3: And if all that weren't enough, Russia came to the table with the United States and then with other NATO allies to talk about all those Russian troops massing on the Ukraine border. And the parties basically agreed to disagree, at least for now, leaving prospects of a further invasion still up in the air, which was part, but only part, of what drove oil prices up this week. Here's IHS market
5: chair, Dan Jurgen. There's geopolitical anxiety uh, feeding into the market on top of a tightening market that's coming with economic rebound.
3: Three big banks reported their earnings at the end of the week with something of a mixed bag. J.P. Morgan reported record profits, but disappointed a bit on trading and is adding to its costs. Citi also came up short on trading in the midst of a major restructuring there, and Wells Fargo said its tepid loan growth in the fourth quarter should pick up this year. Going beyond the banks, the markets overall, well, they had a volatile week. Responding to the high inflation numbers, the low retail sales numbers on Friday, and the testimony of Fed Chair Jay Powell that reducing monetary policy is now a certainty. Stocks fell for the second week in a row with the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ both off about three-tenths of a percent, while yields on the 10-year climbed 125 basis points, ending the week at 1.78. That's the highest level since the pandemic hit. To put this rather confusing week in perspective, we welcome now Bob Diamond. He's Atlas Merchant Capital founding partner and CEO, and Joanne Feeney, Advisors Capital Management partner and portfolio manager. So Joanne, let me start with you. With respect to equities in particular, typically when the interest rates are going up, that's not necessarily something all equities like. Did equities respond that way this week?
2: Yeah, you know, David, and they've responded that way, uh, you know, since the late fall, uh, when I think it became finally clear to investors that interest rates would have to go up, given the level of inflation we're seeing, the tightness in the labor markets, and the slowness with which supply is coming back online. And so, yeah, we certainly saw valuations come back and some uh, come down in some places more than others. And, you know, that We just don't know for how long that's going to go on, which points to that big question that investors always face. Do you try to time this market or you just hold on for the long haul? Uh,
3: So, Bob, what about the Fed trying to time bringing it back down again? How risky is that? Because the the track record on these so-called south landings is not a great one.
4: So, David, we talked about this, um, um, you know, when we when we talked in December. um, The Fed needs to begin moving. Um, As of today, there's still very, very easy, ultra easy, I would call it. The balance sheet is still expanding. There's still um, you know, almost 100 billion in, in, uh, in um, uh, security purchases uh, each month. Um, and I think it's time that they get on with it. So um, I think the sooner they begin this process of kind of easing into an economy that has recovered and is growing and has a very, very tight labor market, the better.
3: At the same time, Bob, you've got Omicron out there, you've got the COVID virus, and so you can't quite know where the economy is going. So how big a risk is it of that so-called policy mistake, stomping on the Great Break too fast and leading us into, dare I say it, a recession?
4: Listen, it is, it is everyone has said who's been on already, this is tricky. It's not, it's not five-minute rice to time this. But I think the biggest mistake that the Fed could make would be to delay too long, um, beginning to get to neutral. And I think, you know, David, we've talked about this before, and Joanne and I have talked about this, but when the Fed goes from ultra-easy to neutral, it's usually fine for the markets. That's been the history. We're we're not even close to neutral yet. So when I say begin the actions, what I'm talking about is getting closer to neutral. If you look at the futures markets, then they're expecting Fed funds, not this year, but at the end of, of 2023, Fed funds will be one and a half to one and three quarters. Neutral is maybe 2%, two and a half percent. And I would just bring up, you know, it it, kind of ages me in my experience on on Wall Street. But if you look at the experience in the uh, early 80s when Volcker had to really, you know, put the brakes on, uh, short rates got to 15 to 20%. So if we talk about getting short rates, overnight Fed funds, back to 2% or two and a half percent, Um, I think that's what we should be aiming for.
2: You know, and and to that point, uh, you know, Bob, you put it really in good context, right? This is not the 80s, right? Short rates heading to 15 percent is is very unlikely for that to be in our future. So we're really looking at short rates in the 2-ish plus percent range. Uh, And also, right, this is a very different economy from where we were back then in the 70s and 80s when we had to deal with those oil embargoes and the slowdown in production This time, the Fed at least has a tailwind to help it solve the inflation problem in that more supply is going to be coming back online this year. Just look at the semiconductor industry, which is bringing new factories up and running and will be putting out chips starting mid-year. And that's going to help by bringing up supply. That'll help close that gap between consumer demand, which is incredibly strong, uh, and the gap in supply that we've been suffering. That should also help to bring down inflation even as those interest rates go up.
3: Bob Diamond and Joanne Feeney will be staying with us as we turn to the specifics of the tech sector, and especially fintech. That's coming up. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
0: Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this.
1: five percent APY making your money work as hard as you do that's how you business differently learn more about QuickBooks money at quickbooks.com slash 5 APY banking services provided by green dot bank member FDIC only funds and envelopes earn APY APY can change at any time
3: this is Bloomberg Wall Street week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio Joanne Feeney of Advisors Capital Management and Bob Diamond of Atlas Merchant Capital are still with us as we turn from the markets overall to one segment that has been particularly riled by the talk of higher rates, and that is the tech sector and more specifically fintech. Bob, let me start with you. You've got some experience now just with banks, but also with tech and specifically fintech with your major deal involving Circle. So give me your sense. Typically, it's thought that tech gets beaten up with higher rates. Is that true now? Is this a time not to invest in tech?
4: Come back to, to higher rates, David. We're talking about just getting back to neutral. So we're talking about maybe a 10-year in the higher end of one5 to 3% and, uh, rather than the lower end. And we're talking about 2% Fed funds rate. So no, I don't think there'll be a negative impact. Um, our investments, our last uh, three or four investments in Atlas Merchant Capital have all had a very, very strong tech angle to them. Um, we're very, very positive overall uh, on the fintech sector. Um, stablecoins in particular, as you know, we, we announced in Concord Acquisition Corp a merger with Circle. Um, and I think payments, technology, stablecoins, um, you know, the ability to, to uh, uh, impact uh, the cost of, of commercial services, uh, the opportunity to increase economic stability, all these things we think are very, very positive. So um, there will be winners and losers. Um, I think there were periods in the market where anything with a tech angle, whether it was fintech or outside of finance, you know, had a good bid. Um, and I think it's, it's appropriate that there are, are uh, you know, a little bit more selective in terms of the platforms that will be most successful. But within financial services, the impact of technology and the impact of uh, technology focused uh, platforms um, is significant. And we really like it as a, as a broad area to invest
2: you know, and I think that um, the news out of, of J.P. Morgan just you know, really confirms that. They are spending because competition is up, and they need to become more efficient. And where are they going to get that technology? Well, some of it will be internal. But if you go beyond the big money center banks, think of all the regional banks, community banks, they also need to become more efficient. And so a lot of the fintech names that are providing some of those capabilities, whether it's a, a smaller name like an Encino or a larger name, You know, they got thrown out, too, uh, over the last several months with all those multiples coming down. So, you know, it's like the babies got thrown out with the bathwater over the last several months. And I think this year we're going to see quality names really come back. So, as Bob was saying, we're going to have to be really selective. But but I think investors are going to start looking more carefully at the companies to see if they actually have customers, a well-defined market, and customers that have money to spend. And, And some of these companies have proved themselves already and their multiples still got crushed. So I think there's a real opportunity for tech investing right now. You know, you don't want to buy tech necessarily when it's really high. You want to buy it when the market is panicking, and when the numbers have really come down, as they have over the last seven months.
4: And jo- Joanne, I would also say you and I had talked about this, but there are sectors like using stablecoins again, um, where you know we should really embrace and encourage clear regulation. Uh, And I think in the case of uh, of Circle, we certainly do uh, embrace regulation. And I think that can also help separate um, uh, platforms from those that are more investable than, than others.
3: And, Joanne, I wonder if that takes us to another big story of the week, actually, was the nomination by President Biden of Sarah Bloom Raskin uh, to be the vice chair of the Fed for supervision because she worked when she was at Treasury. She worked specifically on regulation of crypto. I'm told she's one of the first people to say, we need to regulate this and came up with a paper on it. So does that mean that we're going to have that regulation sooner rather than later and maybe have it be informed?
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, she has a stellar reputation. Uh, I think she's pretty highly respected and she certainly has the experience in her various areas of work over the past many years to be able to, to you know think and and lead discussions pretty pretty well on that but you know I think people again not separating which companies actually benefit from more concise more thorough regulation and which ones might lose you have the whole area trade down on the fear of more regulation when actually it should be viewed as a positive for the development of products in that set and I think people probably misread that so once again going forward I think we're going to get some clarity on the direction in which regulation is likely to go, and I think that could actually help some of the better companies.
6: Joy
4: and I couldn't agree more. I think there's a there's a perception that you know regulation is negative. Regulation is not negative. You know, good sound regulation will make it more clear. Um, who are the winners and who are the losers, and and which you know can operate within a highly regulated financial services industry? My understanding is that the Fed white paper on stablecoins is coming out very soon, and I think that will add to some some, some clarity around that as well. Uh,
3: so, so, Bob, you've mentioned stablecoins a couple times, and really focus, if you would, on the payment companies because you do have experience, you've got investments in the area. Uh, what will be the difference between the the sheep and the goats, if I can put it that way? Because there are a lot of companies out there right now, which ones will survive and flourish and which ones will fall by the wayside?
4: So there are there are stablecoin companies or companies that are platforms that that uh, expect to be that would prefer to be offshore, that would prefer to be outside of the regulatory perimeter. And I think I think those will be very challenged in terms of becoming, um, you know, really used as payments. And there are others like Circle, which has said they plan to um, uh, apply with the OCC um, for a full reserve banking license. That's how, that's how much they would um, prefer to be within the regulatory perimeter of the, of the U.S. financial system. So um, I, think, I think we'll see it with more clarity, David, going forward, but I think we can see it. And, and there's, our, uh, there's already a, a, uh, a separation from those that would prefer to stay outside of the regulatory perimeter and those that would prefer to operate inside.
3: Joanne, I'm really curious, again, for you as a portfolio manager, we hear increasingly people say, even though we're skeptical of cryptocurrency overall, that there is a role in your portfolio for some of it, for various reasons. Do you feel that way? Do you look to balance to some extent, have some role for cryptocurrency, whether stablecoin or a different sort?
2: Yeah, you know, th- there can be a role for it. As Bob was saying, it's at this point a bit of a wild west, right? Some are quality and they're really careful about adhering to what is likely to be regulatory frameworks that keep them safe right, and and create transparency. Um, But, you know, we do uh, create an opportunity for our clients to be involved in in some of the cryptocurrencies. We like the ones that have a more grounded foundation in the underlying blockchain technology. Um, But, you know, it's a bit hard right now to get too too involved because, again, there's going to be a shakeout uh, among those uh, who are are more careful uh, about keeping those transparency, uh, you know, guardrails in place and keeping out some of the more nefarious activities that have been you know used in those platforms and also you know the potential for hacking and other things so one really has to be careful but you know it's a fairly speculative um you know potentially a lot of upside but also a riskier position so one wants to limit exposure i think that that realm at this point
3: great having both you with us that's bob diamond of atlas merchant capital and joanne feeney of advisors capital management Coming up, it looks like Fed Chair Jay Powell is headed toward a second tour of duty. But what confronts him this time may be very different from what he's seen before. We ask former Fed Governor Dan Tarullo of Harvard.
5: They could dust off uh, a lot of the tools from the 80s. You know, the output gap analysis, uh, Phillips curve.
3: This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio economic defender of last resort. Since the great financial crisis of 2008, it's been the Federal Reserve we've depended on to bail out the economy when things got rough.
5: The ongoing labor market slack and the subdued inflation outlook are key reasons for the committee's decision to maintain the current high degree of monetary policy. Monetary policy will likely remain highly accommodative for quite some time.
3: But now we face something we haven't seen for a while. A Fed bent on tightening rather than loosening. With Chair Jay Powell testifying at his confirmation hearing this week, that quantitative easing has to come to an end. We'll be normalizing policy, meaning we're gonna end our asset purchases in March. That rate hikes are coming this year. If we have to raise interest rates more over time, we will. And that the Fed's balance sheet is just too big. You know, we're mindful that the balance sheet is $9 trillion. It's far above where it needs to be. In short, that the economy no longer needs the sort of monetary policy support the Fed has been providing for over a decade. The economy no longer needs or wants the very highly accommodative
4: policies that we've had in place to deal with the pandemic and the aftermath.
3: And so, as Jay Powell is on the brink of being confirmed for a second term as chair of the Federal Reserve, it's time to think about how different the next four years may be from what came before. And to help us take a look at what the Federal Reserve has in store for it. Coming up, we welcome now a former member of the Federal Reserve Board. He is Daniel Tarullo. Dan, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, it's been one thing to manage the Fed. It's not been easy, I'm not saying, when we were loosening monetary policy, supporting the economy. How difficult will it be if, in when Jay Powell gets confirmed as the next chair to
5: really have a very different regime? Well, David, it's true. For the first time, really, in about 40 years, Inflation is the uh, part of the dual mandate that's front and center, uh, if not standing alone, at least much more prominent than it has been. And essentially what they're confronting here is they've had, of course, a major supply side shock in the form of the virus of uncertain duration uh, with literal variants that keep mucking up people's efforts to analyze when the effects will pass through At the same time, they've had an awful lot of fiscal stimulus over the last uh, couple of years. And so when you have reduced supply and increased demand, uh, predictably, you've got inflation of a sort that we haven't seen in some time. Now, the Fed spent most of 2020 telling itself and us that they thought it, that inflation was going to be transitory because it was grounded in those supply side effects, people not going to work, not being able to get things around the uh, country and the like. Um, obviously, they're not holding to that line anymore. Uh, and the the, uh, the uh, implicit policy uh, implication of their Uh, view last year that they didn't really need to do much has now obviously uh, uh, been abandoned. But they now need a new hypothesis as to uh, the trajectory of inflation, what will cause it to perhaps recede, what will cause it to embed itself. Uh, and and that's really, I think, the first order of business on monetary policy for the Fed this year. Do they
3: have, as far as you can tell, a theory of the case at this point? Uh, what are they managing this for? As they say, we have to get inflation down. We heard that from both Fed Chair Jay Powell as well as Larry Brainerd this week. They agree on the goal, but do they have a theory about how to come about with that goal?
5: Well, they have. I wouldn't have expected that at confirmation hearings they would have put forth a uh, uh, a more or less nuanced monetary policy view. Uh, so I don't know uh, what their operating theory is now, um, but it, it's surely not just going to be uh, last year's. I mean, there are several options, right? Uh, they, they tend to talk about expectations a lot. That is, uh, well-grounded inflation expectations in the public and markets keeping inflation down. Um, that's a a hard one to judge in real time, and nobody really quite understands why expectations change. They could dust off uh, a lot of the tools from the 80s, you know, the output gap analysis, uh, Phillips curve, the relationship between inflation and unemployment, wage price uh, cycles, uh, and try to apply that right now. Or they could come up really with transitory version two, uh, which would basically say, look, we think the medium term or longer term disinflationary forces in the economy, globalization, demographics and the like, are still at work. Um, and so we, we don't need to make major adjustments in uh, monetary policy, but we do make, need to make some. So those are at least three possibilities or some combination of them. But I haven't seen anything yet Uh, that would give us a hint as to which particular blend of those uh, notions the Fed is going to adopt. What's important, David, though, is that they do articulate, as you put it, a theory of the case so that they can then judge incoming data against that theory, and that allows them to make policy adjustments as appropriate.
3: Thank you so much to Daniel Tarullo of the Harvard Law School. Coming up, we wrap up the week with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show
0: is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally,
1: five percent APY making your money work as hard as you do that's how you business differently learn more about QuickBooks money at quickbooks.com slash 5 APY banking services provided by green dot bank member FDIC only funds and envelopes earn APY APY can change at any time
3: this is Bloomberg Wall Street week with David Weston From Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We are delighted to welcome back once again our special contributor, Larry Summers, to Wall Street Week. So, Larry, we had a lot of data flow this week, uh, and I'd like your reaction to it. And let's lead off with the lead, which is those CPI numbers of 7%. It's been a good long time since we've seen that kind of number.
6: It has, uh, David. Uh, Richard Nixon imposed wage price controls when inflation was about two thirds as high as it's been last year. This is above any place it got during the guns and butter of uh, Vietnam inflation. I think the data flow is saying what I've thought for quite some time, that yes, there are transitory elements in inflation, and very likely they will recede. But we are basically moving towards uh, higher entrenched inflation. It's there in expectations. It's there in wages. It's there in uh, labor shortages. It's there in the pervasive pattern across uh, many different uh, prices. And people try to excuse it by picking this figure and that figure from uh, month to month. But we've got an overheated economy, and the Fed's going to have the very real challenge of cooling that economy uh, off um, and doing it in a controlled way, that has not been done very successfully uh, in uh, the past. So it's going to be a very challenging year for macroeconomic policy.
3: And I suspect that the approach depends on what the causes are of the underlying inflation. And we have various candidates put forward. For example, we talked with Brian Deese, you know him well, from the White House this week. He said, well, really, this is a supply side problem. Once we get the supply chain fixed, it'll be, it'll be all fixed. Is he right?
6: No. He's wrong. Uh, We have a massive, overheated labor market. We have the highest ratio of vacancies to unemployment in the country's history by a large margin. We have shortages of labor in everything from psychotherapy uh, to McDonald's, in everything from investment analysts to uh, garters. That suggests a surfeit of purchasing power and demand relative to the capacity of the economy uh, to uh, produce. And unless we bring those things into balance, we're going to have not just higher inflation, but possibly even uh, accelerating uh, inflation. And we need to recognize that We have an overheated economy that we are going to need uh, to cool off um, in uh, the time to come. And until we do that, it is going to be much more difficult uh, to address uh, the problem. Yes, we need to do what we can to open up ports. Yes, if there was anything we could do to... Cause there to be more semiconductors, uh, that would be good. Yes, better childcare arrangements to enable more women uh, to work uh, would uh, be desirable. But fundamentally, this inflation is about um, an overheating economy, and that's the thing that uh, we have to address.
3: All of which takes us back to your statement that it's pretty difficult for the Fed to have a soft landing here. The track record is not unblemished. I think it's fair to say. Uh, with the three new nominees from President Biden, he will have basically put five people in place: renominating Jay Powell as chair, promoting his proposal, as promoting Leo Brandon, and then three new members. What do we know about these people? What does it say about the Constitution of the Fed going forward, assuming they get confirmed?
6: Let me say that I strongly support uh, the reconfirmation of uh, Jay Powell, and I strongly support uh, Lael Brainerd's nomination to be uh, vice chair of uh, the Fed. The president has made clear his commitment to the independence of uh, the Fed. Part of that commitment is allowing and encouraging the Fed to be focused on its fundamental jobs of maintaining a non-inflationary economy with as strong employment as is possible on a sustained basis. If a sense develops that there's a desire to politicize the Fed by focusing it towards... Other issues beyond the crucial issues of uh, financial stability, I think that could be problematic for uh, the Fed's credibility, and so it will be very important uh, to for the nominees who have distinguished track records in different uh, areas in the past to present their views uh, to. Uh, Congress and for Congress to very seriously consider those views.
3: I'm curious about where you think we are in dealing with the pandemic and more pointedly, uh, in the past on this program, you questioned, particularly during the Trump administration, the competence of the government. Were they demonstrating competence in the way they handled it? At this point, is the Biden administration demonstrating competence in the way it's handling the pandemic?
6: It is so much easier to be on the outside and criticize and uh, carp and judge things in retrospect that I'm reluctant uh, to pass judgment on uh, what the Biden administration uh, has done. Certainly, uh, we now need to be focused on much more than vaccination, on rapid dissemination of treatment, particularly on uh, the availability of tests. I wish those things had happened uh, faster. I wish the CDC and the FDA had broken more out of their conventional rhythms to reflect the extraordinary situation uh, that uh, we're dealing with. But I would underscore one thing, David, and that is that COVID anywhere is a risk of mutation that could lead to catastrophe everywhere. And that we are underinvesting as a global system on a massive scale in the global effort to uh, contain uh, COVID. And in addition to its moral significance around the world, we are making it more likely that the next uh, vaccine, uh, the next COVID strain will have Omicron's transmissibility and some other strains uh, lethality. And that is a grave risk to uh, the global system and one that I think is not getting enough attention.
3: Okay, well said. Thank you so much, Larry. It's always a delight to have you. That is Larry Summers, of course, of Harvard University. Thank you. Finally, one more thought, playing by the rules of vaccine mandates. Everyone is talking about them, from banks saying that if you don't get the jab, you can't keep your job, to the Supreme Court ruling that it's up to Congress, not the president, to make them universal.
2: In early 2020, while millions stayed at home, millions of healthcare workers heroically stayed at at work. These same workers are now forced to tune between losing their jobs and complying with the government's vaccine mandate.
3: It's one thing to try to tell your employees what they need to do to come to work. It's quite another when it's an independent contractor who makes tens of millions of dollars a year, has a vocal global fan base, and, oh, by the way, is arguably the greatest of all time. That's what Australia has on its hands in Novak Djokovic, looking to break his tie with Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer for the most Grand Slam wins ever by a man. And, oh, by the way, he's an outspoken skeptic of vaccinations. Mr. Djokovic has been, shall we say, a bit cagey about his vaccination status, invoking instead his claim that he caught the virus, recovered, and is therefore immune, all of which got him into the country, only to have the government say it wasn't enough and he'd have to leave and say goodbye to that 21st Grand Slam title, which put the issue in the lap of the courts, the courts of law and the courts of public opinion, as tensions continued in advance of the start of the Australian open next week. Rules are rules and there are no special cases. But it's not only tennis stars playing a bit fast and loose with vaccine mandates these days. We have the infamous case of NFL quarterback Aaron Rodgers who was forced to sit out when it turned out he really hadn't been vaccinated after he'd led everyone to believe that he had.
4: I made a choice that was in my best interest. You might respect it. You might hate it.
3: And, of course, not far from Wall Street, superstar guard Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets hasn't been able to play at home all season long. Although his team needs him so badly, it is now starting to let him play on the road where local authorities permit. I
4: understood their, uh, their choice to, to say if you're not going to be vaccinated, fully vaccinated, then you, know, you can't be a full participant. And um, I knew the consequences. Uh, I wasn't prepared for them by no stretch of imagination.
3: But all that may pale in comparison to what China has in front of it, trying to keep to its zero COVID policy with hundreds of athletes through an
2: entire Winter Olympics. With one city closed of about 11 million people, and now cases of Omicron found in Tianjin, which is just, you know, around the corner from Beijing, and an Olympics coming up in less than a month, um, all eyes on
5: China right now.
3: So if you think you're struggling with your version of a vaccine mandate, just think about the poor Australians or the Chinese, or for that matter, the NBA. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week.
1: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna HealthCare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.